You are listening to Noteworthy Differences. Looking at transforming grief into advocacy, uh, could you share how your personal experience with grief motivated you to embark on a mission to normalize conversations about it? Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, it all sort of ha- started out of necessity, really. Um, my most recent loss, which shifted my trajectory into grief education, was the death of my son, Ben. Um, he died just about three years ago. And what I learned with that loss that was different from others I'd experienced was, first of all, as you might expect, the loss of a child is just a magnifier of grief. And you, for me anyway, and it seems like for most parents, experience grief at a different level uh, than you have before. And I learned very early on that I didn't know enough about grief for myself to be able to understand what was happening to me, to understand the symptoms, and that what I was experiencing was really normal. And the people who wanted to support me didn't really know how to do that. And so as I kind of got out of survival mode, because I had this idea very early on that in order to survive, I was going to need to be conscious and curious. So the conscious was about allowing all of the emotions and not resisting any of it, even though at times it was overwhelming and, you know, more hideous than I can explain. But I knew that if I tried to stuff those emotions or push them aside, that that was going to be my destruction, right? That that was not going to be healthy for me. And I also knew that I was going to need to stay curious because I didn't know how this was going to go. Nobody seemed to know either, (laughs) you know, and we have such a taboo around grief in our cultures and and we generally don't talk about it. And so we're not, not learning from each other. You know, I am absolutely confidently sure that every symptom I experienced and every experience that I had, somebody else has had before me. But because we don't talk about it, it all felt like there was something wrong with me, which of course isn't the case. My experience was very normal. And so I really began to be curious about, you know, how we could shift that. How could we create a world where grievers were comfortable grieving and they didn't have to feel like they should feel shame about their emotions or they should feel like they had to keep it private because nobody could understand what was happening for them or feel like, you know, they were unsupported, which is often what happens. There's this common understanding in grief circles that grief changes your address book. And that absolutely was what I experienced. And I became so curious about why. And that is part of what has led me down this path of really looking at grief from that standpoint. You know, what is it that we don't know? What is it we don't understand? What is it we're not sharing that would allow us to, both as the griever and as the support person who wants to show up for them, know enough about grief that even though it's awful and devastating and comes with all kinds of huge emotions, we have a level of comfort and confidence that we're able to help people who are experiencing it. We're able to navigate it ourselves and really shift that sense of it needing to be this kind of behind closed door experience that we do in isolation to something that we could do to create connection. Because the other thing I experienced was that the people who were able to show up, mostly by starting with saying something like, I have no idea what to say or do, but 
let's I'm here for you and let's figure it out together, right? Because we just don't know enough about it yeah. as a collective. You know, because how could I expand that? How what can I do with my experience, with my expertise to open up conversations, to educate people? Because we're tangled in fear. We feel so much fear about doing the wrong thing, about hurting the person's feelings, about making it worse. As the griever, we're, we fear that we're doing it wrong or that if we face our fear and you know face our grief and the bigness of those emotions, we'll get stuck there. There's just so much fear entangled in it. And so I really, you know, it's become my mission and my goal to open up conversations everywhere I can and help us through education and gaining knowledge move from that fear into something that feels more like love. Um, as a grief educator, uh, your focus um, includes working with organizations to establish um, grief literacy in the workplace. How do you um, approach this endeavor and what are the key benefits for businesses for fostering a grief-informed environment? So I go about this endeavor a number of ways. Um, you know, I will talk about grief to anyone who will listen. So I'm happy to talk about it to, you know, meetings and organizations and conferences, all of those kinds of things. There's great spaces there to do grief education for sure. And I love to work with organizations. I have a program that I can do with leadership or I can do with the whole organization. And really what we look at is, you know, where does grief show up in your workplace? Generally, it comes from three different places. So it will come from people bringing grief from their personal lives. So that can be individual or collective grief. So people are bringing grief with them. Grief happens in the workplace. So, you know, we're broadening our expansion of grief to be beyond the loss of loved ones to our response to losses of all sorts, right? Every loss brings grief with it um, to varying degrees for different people. But there's I have yet to encounter a business that doesn't have some grief embedded in it. I think it's really easy for us to see that when we talk about social services or healthcare. But even if you're talking about a product that you launched that wasn't as successful as you hoped it would be, or an initiative that you were um, bringing to the fore of the organization that you know didn't get a great response, all of those things where something doesn't turn out the way we had imagined have loss attached to them and loss has grief attached to it. So, you know, that's the second place. And then oftentimes we have customers, so patients, clients, students, you know, shoppers that are bringing grief with them. So how do we respond to them in a way that's thoughtful and, you know, open-hearted and really allows people to feel comfortable in our, you know, customer-facing aspect of our business? The plus for businesses is that it really builds engagement. You know, if we can look at this from an emotional intelligence perspective and we're really building that, you know, set of skills and capacities, we're really look at, looking at how compassionate we are as an organization. So compassion for me is that, you know, final step of the continuum between sympathy, where we feel sorry for someone, to empathy, where we are you know, have that sense of putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, trying to understand what they're experiencing. And then compassion is that empathy in action. So it's all well and good for me to say, oh, I understand how you're feeling. But when we move into, you know, how can I help you today? What structures can I have in my business that really support people who are grieving to be successful? Because we know grievers are in the workplace, right? If you're 
the average, I don't know what it's like where you are, but in North America, the average leave is about three days. And that's for a close family member, which the employer gets to define. And it's often very limited who's on that list. And then you may have one day off for a slightly broader list, or you've had no days off. So, and then if we're talking about griefs that come from losses other than the loss of a loved one, there's no ability to take time off generally for those. So people are at work in grief, in the very early days of grief. They're experiencing grief that came from the workplace. And for the most part, we're not talking about it. So we're leaving people feeling isolated. We're leaving people grappling with things like burnout. And we're really crushing our engagement, right? If we can't allow people to be their whole selves at work, if they don't feel seen, heard, and valued, our engagement plummets. The other place that it really helps organizations is when you're looking at something like an employer of choice status, right? And you want to stand out when you're trying to do your recruitment or trying to retain your talent. So that's another aspect that we look at, like how do we use this skill set that you're building, these policies that you're putting into place really as almost part of your branding and your uh, recruitment that where you can say to prospective employees, you know, we have these amazing programs and we have gone so far, you know, we're showing impeccable care of our team by looking at this aspect of life that is so prevalent for all of us right now because we've gone through what we've gone through in the last three and a half years. And, you know, we're facing a new normal that appears to be mostly about disruption. So, you know, there's grief. We're swimming in a sea of grief right now. It's all around us. So we're taking good care of our employees by doing this. And of course, all of those things, if you're upping your engagement, you're upping your retention, you're upping your profitability. And, you know, I'm not talking about rampant, you know, off the rails, bad running capitalism. I'm talking about sound business where if we care about our teams and we care about our customers, we have to be profitable in order to stay in business. And one of the ways that we can boost that is by people feeling fully engaged, by people being able to be at work even when they're struggling and feel supported and feel like they're being successful and they're contributing. And it just makes a real change in the workplace culture. And really right now we're seeing over and over and over again, you know, workplace culture as this metric of success. You know, there was a really great study out of um, MIT that was talking about workplace culture as, you know, looking at organizations that had prioritized workplace culture, um, building at twice the pace over a three-year period as organizations that hadn't, right? Workplace culture is 10 times more indicative of your retention levels than compensation. It's a big deal what your workplace culture is like, what your employee experience is like. And this is one of the ways that you can really show you know, your team, your leadership, that this is really important, that how we care for each other is really important. And we need to step into an area that so far has been quite taboo and remains uncomfortable for most of us. And we can do it anyway, right? It's courageous leadership. It's compassionate leadership. Hmm. And what does it look like um, when you're creating or how do you create like a um, safe and supportive space for employees? Uh, to discuss their uh, grief experiences openly in organizations. Um, how does this kind of look like? Yeah, what it looks like is at the at the highest level, it looks like you have a policy. So the same way you have a return to work policy for someone who's been injured, you have a return to work policy for someone experiencing grief. And what that can look like, for example, is sort of a menu. That's the best analogy I can draw for people. <laughs> where you have an assortment of things that people can access depending on what they need at any given time. So maybe 
It's something like flex time. That's really helpful to grievers in the early days when we lose our connection with time. Our relationship with time becomes really muddied for most of us. So maybe you can offer flex time. Maybe you can offer work at home. If, you know, if you're bringing people back into the workplace or if you weren't able to ever leave, you know, maybe you can offer a hybrid model or a work from home model so people have the comfort of not having to put on a good face all day or feel like they have to be yeah. regulated all day, regulating their emotions all day, which is really hard in those early days, especially. It might look like you're taking extra care of your folks who work in safety sensitive positions because we know grief creates distraction. It's very common to feel distracted when you're grieving and distraction is really bad for safety. So how can we take really great care of our folks in safety sensitive positions when they're experiencing grief? How can we leverage technology? You know, right now it's so easy to use shared calendars, to use shared documents where we're breaking out, for example, multi-step tasks. So a lot of the time for grievers, multi-step tasks are really hard. So remembering that first I have to do one thing and then I do the next thing and then I do the next thing to get to the result I want sometimes is really hard. That's part of the brain fog that mm. envelops us for quite a long time, uh, up to two years uh, is sort of the most recent data that I've seen, okay. which made me feel really better around the two-year mark when I still felt quite foggy. Mm -hmm. um, so that brain fog can last for up to two years. So how can we put things in place so that grievers have almost a scaffold around them that supports them to do their job and that they have control over. So they get to say what they need. We supply it if we're able, right? I'm not asking businesses to overextend themselves past what's possible. But I think what's possible is way more than what we're doing now. Because right now, really, for the most part, we're doing nothing, right? You get your three days off. You might have access to an employee assistance program to some form of counseling. But actually, in the workplace for doing your job, there's nothing. There's no set structure. So it happens on an ad hoc basis. It happens on teams where maybe you have a leader who's got some personal experience with grief, so they might have an understanding that maybe other leaders don't have. And what we want to do is try and level all of that out and also create a framework for conversation because we're asking then supervisors, managers, leaders to have conversations that still feel uncomfortable. And when you have that framework, when you have that policy that says, here's what, you know, here's how we qualify grief, you know, here's how you get access to this policy. We make that as broad as possible. Here's the things that might be available to you. Then the supervisor has a framework to hang their conversation on, which is really helpful when this conversation can kind of feel awkward. And the person who's experiencing grief knows that there's something for them to tap into. Because we have to take that weight of advocacy off of grievers because it's really hard. So when you are, especially in those early days after the loss of a loved one, those kind of big griefs that we understand, or we have a concept of anyway, what we maybe don't understand, but we have a concept of them, you know, to try and advocate for what you need in those moments where you're just trying to get through the day, it's too much to ask of people. So if we can have a structure in place that they just have to tap into, then we're having a completely different kind of conversation. And what it models for the people who aren't experiencing grief is that you're an employer who really cares, who really values their people, wants them to be at work even when they're struggling, 
and wants to support them. So it is that shift from, you know, I feel bad for you to I understand how you're feeling to really what can I do to help you? And that all boosts all of the bottom line drivers around productivity and engagement and retention. Do you have any particular like strategies or techniques that um, you do uh, tell supervisors or even just employees or just in general, like um, how to kind of navigate these complex uh, discussions around grief and loss? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So in a very general sense, because you're right, every griever is different. Every business is different. Every community of friends is different. Every community, like every organization is different. But in the most general sense, you know, the most common questions I get asked are, what can I say and what can I do? You know, people will reach out to me all the time and say, oh my gosh, my friend, you know, lost whatever person they lost and I I just don't even know where to start. So when it comes to what to say, we really want to be open-hearted and speak from that heart-centered space and saying what's true, right? All those old platitudes and cliches, we just need to like make a list and rip it up or have a ceremonial burning or something. We need to release them back to wherever they came from and just never use them. At most, they're neutral. Many of them are actively harmful. And most of them have a really, you know, negative subtext. You know, I I was reminded the other day of an experience I had relatively early on when someone said to me, oh, you know, your son wouldn't want you to be sad. He would want you to be happy. And people hear that all the time. It's something we have said for years. The problem with it is what it really means is the person who's saying it doesn't want me to be sad. And the person who's saying it needs me to be happy. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, the person who's saying it is now not a safe space for me to grieve. So the subtext of most of those things is really isolating. It really shuts down that, that connection. But if you can say something open-hearted, even as I said earlier, if it's something like, I have no idea what to say, there's no right words for this situation, but I'm sure you must be feeling all kinds of big emotions and I'm here to sit with you or go for a walk or, you know, rage or be silent or sob or whatever you need, right? And it's okay for us to admit that we don't really know. As a collective, we don't know. It's no surprise. We don't. And that's okay for us to admit that together. That's how we're going to start to shift and move. So admitting what you do and don't know, it's really important to never try to equate your experience with that of the griever, right? I know exactly, you know, I lost my dad too. I know exactly what you're going through. It's just not true because your relationship with your dad is different than mine. Everything about their deaths was probably different. And even for me, someone who lost a son of a similar age in a similar way, you still don't know exactly what I'm going through because we're all so different. So anything that centers you in the conversation instead of the griever, Mm -hmm. we could avoid that too. And just go back to that really heart-centered, you know, when I do an exercise in my workshops and we brainstorm and do a journaling exercise about what could you say, the things people come up with are so beautiful. You know, the most beautiful greeting cards you could ever write really is just you writing from your relationship with the person you're reaching out to, acknowledging their relationship with the person who's gone or the or the thing that they've lost. You know, if we're talking about job loss, for example, or, or losses of relationships, we're so quick to go to fix-it mode when really what the person probably needs more is 
someone to say, wow, that's really terrible. I know you had a lot of, you know, dreams about that, thoughts about that, emotions about that, whatever the rate, well, you know, whatever's true. And I, I imagine you must be feeling a lot of big emotions. That's fine. That's brilliant. Instead of, oh, so I'm so mad that you lost your job, but like, it just means there's a better one out there for you. That's not helpful. We want to support each other, but the support comes from connection. So that's a very long answer to what can you say. Mm. What can you do is actually the opposite. So this is what we talk about in workplaces. The what can you do part needs to be very specific, preferably a yes, no question. So we have a big meeting coming up tomorrow. Would it be helpful for me to touch base with you at the end of today to see what's left to be done in order for us to be ready for that meeting? And then we could come up with a plan together for the morning. Very specific. If it's a friend or a, a family member, you could say, hey, you know, I'm headed to the grocery store. Go stand in front of your fridge and tell me what's missing. Or do you need milk or bread? Very specific offers. The problem with all of the loving, thoughtful things people say that sound sort of like, you know, anything I can do, let me know, or anything you need, give me a call. As a griever, you can't conceptualize that. We can't imagine what we might need except in this exact moment. And remembering who offered and what they might be able to do for us at some point in the future, also very difficult. So a really specific at offer is the best. And if it's something you're doing for yourself, probably the griever needs it too. So maybe it's your neighbor and you could say, hey, on Thursdays when it's garbage day, are you okay with me sneaking into your backyard to take your cans down? And then the griever gets to decide yes or no, easy questions, yes, no answers. And if they say no, oh, that's just no to that offer. So don't let that shut you down forever. And the other thing to understand is grievers need support far longer than we've been told. We all want to pretend that after you've had that three days off, after you've made it through the funeral, the celebration of life, whatever ritual you're going to have, that you should be able to get back to life as normal. That's not true. So anything you're doing practically that you can offer the person you could offer it to them two months later. You could offer it to them four months later, six months later. They may still need support. And even if they're not struggling at an intense level still, there's probably things they're struggling with. And that's a great question as, it, as time goes by, right? What's left that you're still really struggling with that I could take off your plate? If you love what you're hearing and want to support us, consider buying us a coffee on buymeacoffee.com forward slash ndpodcast. That's N for November, D for Delta podcast. Your contribution will help fuel our podcast and bring you even more great content in the future. So thank you for being part of this podcasting journey. That's a great question. Not at the beginning because it's too broad, but maybe six months down the line when all of the support has disappeared and the person's left alone trying to figure out what normal is. If you reached out and said, you know, I'm thinking of you today, just wondering if there's anything you're still struggling with that I could help you with. I had someone do my groceries for about a year and a half, bless their heart. Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. Yeah. But I just could not face the grocery store. Grocery stores are really hard for grievers. And so thank goodness I had someone in my life that I reached out to and said, you know, could you do like, could you do some grocery shopping for me? And they were like, absolutely. Anytime you need groceries, you just send me the list. And I did for a year and a half. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if they thought that's what they were offering, but bless them, they graciously did it.
But I, I do like yeah, the the theme, the occurring theme is uh, being open-hearted. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, freely expressing on displaying one's uh, yeah warm and kind feelings. That's brilliant. Um, no, definitely a conversation that uh, yeah, I wasn't wasn't too sure what I'll, I'll learn from this one, but uh, definitely some things to take away. Yeah, most definitely. And I'm hoping um, a lot of listeners yeah would probably take something out of it too. And I appreciate your time. Um, just a, a legacy question, um, and it's unique to the show. When you do pass on, what would you like to have been known for? I would like to be known for holding that curiosity, for really disrupting the silence around grief, and for really making a big difference to us as a collective around how we deal with this topic that feels in this moment, right, in September of 2023, still feels taboo and awkward and difficult. And I absolutely know it doesn't need to be that way. Well, thank you for joining me on uh, the podcast and appreciate your time and your deep insights and uh, just being open-hearted and open about um, yeah your experiences, which is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so appreciative. Hey, Chris here. Thank you for listening to that episode. And if you'd like to hear any other episodes of mine at Noteworthy Differences, you can find me on Spotify or Apple or any other streaming platforms where you listen to your podcast.